you stand with us as we begin our morning worship with prayer? Brandon, may I prevail upon you to lead us in prayer? remain standing. You take your red hymnal this morning and turn to, no, brown hymnal, sorry, brown hymnal, and five, five, two, one, instead of five, two, zero, five, two, one, sorry, in the brown, five, two, one.
George. Pastor George. Yes, sir. Yep, that's you. Okay. Have a reason for this hymn? Just because it was adjacent and a good hymn? Well, uh, this is an old hymn that uh, we love. And uh, personally, I am amazed that God would uh, lift us up out of the miry clay, set our feet on solid ground, and uh, bring us into his loving presence.
Our scripture reading for this morning is taken from the book of Ezekiel. Ezekiel 37, verses 1 through 14, page 1345. When you get it, please stand and we'll begin the reading. The hand of the Lord was on me, and he brought me out by the Spirit of the Lord and set me in the middle of a valley. It was full of bones. He led me back and forth among them, and I saw a great many bones on the floor of the valley, bones that were very dry. He asked me, Son of man, who can, um, son of man, can these bones live? I said, Sovereign Lord, you alone know. And he said to me, Prophesy to these bones and say to them, Dry bones, hear the word of the, of the Lord. This is what the Sovereign Lord says to these bones. I will make breath enter you, and you will come to life. I will attach tendons to you and make flesh come upon you and cover you with skin. I will put breath in you, and you will come to life. Then you will know that I am the Lord. So I prophesied as I was commanded, and as I was prophesying, there was a noise, a rattling sound, and the bones came together, bone to bone. I looked, and tendons and flesh appeared on them, and skin covered them, but there was no breath in them. Then he said to me, prophesy, prophesy to the breath, prophesy, son of man, and say to it, this is what the sovereign Lord says, come, breathe from the four winds, and breathe into these slain, that they may live. So I prophesied as he commanded me, and breath entered them, they came to life and stood up and their feet, on their feet a vast army. Then he said to me, Son of man, these bones are the bone, people of Israel. They say, Our bones are dried up and our hope is gone. We are cut off. Therefore prophesy and say to them, This is what the sovereign Lord says. My people, I am going to open your graves and bring you up from them. I will bring you back to the land of Israel. Then you, my people, will know that I am the Lord when I open your graves and bring you up from them. I will put my spirit in you, and you will live, and I will settle you in your own land. Then you will know that I, the Lord, have spoken, and I have done it, declares the Lord. May the Lord add his blessing to this holy and inspired scripture. Please remain standing. take your red hymnal and it says 651 but I did not notice that um, that was the one that George just chose so we're going to do number 650 no it's all right it's our, our fault for not catching it we got to sing it anyway so it doesn't matter so 650 <laughs>
Our text this morning is Ezekiel 37. In this three-part series concerning Christ as Savior, we studied God's decree to save last week. In the pre-dawn period before time and space, before the material universe came to be, God chose a people, the scripture says, before the creation of the world. That's phenomenal. Just think of that. And he predestinated them to be adopted as his sons and daughters. Ephesians 1 and verse 4. Secondly, he registered them by name, by name, in the Lamb's book of life, also before the creation of the world. Revelation 17 and verse 8. So we're getting very personal here now, aren't we? Thirdly, Christ satisfied God's requirement of the law that would pay for our sins by being himself the substitute who suffered and died as the slain land of God, also recorded as before the creation of the world. Revelation 13, verse 8. So all of this, as you can see, was preplanned. It's not like, oh, something happened and God goes... Now what am I going to do? How am I going to correct? Oh, I know what I'll do. I'll, I'll, none of that. It is all pre-planned and by God's grace. So the obvious conclusion is that your salvation and mine was preordained before we even came into existence. And before we could have done anything remotely acceptable to God, including a response to the gospel. Salvation is all of God's gracious choice from start to finish. But having said all of that, a decree, a decree to save is not salvation. It is rather the intent of God to save, the blueprint for what is to become a reality. But it is not salvation until the day you and I hear the gospel and believe savingly in Jesus as Savior and Lord. The decree means that salvation is sure to occur. It's never in doubt. Nothing can thwart the will of God. Nothing can frustrate his plan. But it still means that there is a means of coming to Christ, and that's through the preaching of the word, the exercise of faith, the exercise of repentance, and that must occur in real time space history. So we're not talking blanket redemption like our Arminian brethren teach. We're talking about specifics from start to finish. So today I want to talk about the day you first believed. And as we do, let's ask the Lord's blessing. Our Father, we're thankful that your word is true. It does smack at us at times. 
It humbles us all times. It reminds us that it's God that saves and not us. We can't even talk about partnership with you. You are the Savior from start to finish. We need to hear that, believe it, and act upon it. It'll change our life completely when we accept the truths. We pray that you'll bless the study of your word today. We have gathered today as your people in this your building that you've provided for us. But the church is the body of Christ, and here we are as the body in the Metamora, Dryden area, other parts of Michigan. We're so thankful for that. Please bless us with your presence and your power. Save whom you will. Encourage believers and strengthen us for the task of witnessing to the gospel and living out the gospel before our watching world. We'll give you all the glory. In Jesus' name, amen. It may seem strange to you that I have chosen Ezekiel 17 as a text from which to preach about the day of salvation. But if you note the context, especially verse 11 and following, you will begin to see the connection. The valley of dry bones epitomizes the necessity of God's grace in the salvation of people and accentuates the required miracle of resurrection in order to be saved. Understand firstly that dry bones are dead bones, and dead bones mean dead people. That's kind of obvious, isn't it? Verse 2 tells us that God's Spirit led Ezekiel back and forth amidst the floor of this valley, on which were strewn, and I'm quoting here now, a great many bones. And then it says, bones that are very dry. Verse 1 says, the valley was full of bones. So Ezekiel stood in the midst of this valley. So his vantage point allowed him to peruse in all directions and to take note that he was, in fact, standing in the middle of a massive killing field. In verse 9, God himself tells us that these dead were slain. Wow. So they died in battle, right? And they lied where they were slain. There, amidst the elements of rain and sun, the scavenging of vultures and wild beasts which devour all the remains except the bones. We can comprehend this. But the bones have a story to tell. They tell of a time when these people were alive, a time when blood coursed through their veins, a time when their every thought was to obey the commander-in-chief 
They were the people of God, empowered by the Spirit of God, by the breath of God Himself. They were invincible. No army could touch Israel, for God fought with them and for them. As Paul wrote later, If God is for us, who can be against us? Romans 8, verse 31. But, but, when Israel went after strange gods, idol gods of their own making, God responded, I poured out my wrath on them because they had shed blood in the land and because they had defied it with their idols. Ezekiel 36, verse 18. So God became angry. And the nature of God's wrath was this, two actions. Number one, the ruin of Jerusalem. Let me read it for you. As surely as I live, those who are left in the ruins will fall by the sword. Is this your valley of dry bones? Those out in the country I will give to the wild animals to be devoured, and those in strongholds and caves will die of the plague. I will make the land a desolate waste because of all the detestable things they have done. Ezekiel 33, verse 27 and following. That's number one. Number two, God says, I disperse them. Who? The survivors. Kind of a living death. I disperse them among the nations. They were scattered throughout the countries. I judge them according to their conduct and actions. Ezekiel 36, verse 19. That's why we have Jews everywhere, living every part of the world. God dispersed them. So you see, the story of the dry bones tells on a national scale what happened on a personal level in the Garden of Eden, which is alluded to, by the way, chapter 36, verse 35. Adam and Eve were God's own handiwork into whom God himself breathed the breath of life, Genesis 2, verse 7. They were God's people. He was their God. As such, they had but one rule of conduct from their commander-in-chief. And for a time, for a time, they obeyed that rule because their heart was alive towards God. But one day, one day, the serpent, Satan, the enemy of God, convinced him that God was not worthy of their allegiance and worship. I mean, there was more to know then God was telling them, and it's an astonishing move of apostasy from the truth of God that Adam and Eve opted for that idol concept of God. But they did. Paul writes it this way, Their thinking became futile, and their foolish hearts were darkened. That is, the light of spiritual life left them, and they died. He goes on, although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images, for idols. Romans 1, verse 21 and following. Now God had warned them, you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat of it, you will surely die. Genesis 2, verse 17. And died they did. 
slain in a battle where they went up against God's enemy and theirs, relying upon their own wisdom instead of God's word. They died that day, slain by the lie of the evil one, and they fell where they were slain. But because they continued to live physically and mentally and emotionally, they never sensed that God's spirit had departed from them. It's like Samson. When he divulged the secret of his strength to Delilah, and unbeknown to him, he tried to defend himself against the Philistines in his own strength, not sensing that he had lost the power of the Holy Spirit. So Adam and Eve went on with their life, as they thought of it. However, expelled from God's paradise, dispersed among the nations. As the woman engulfed in sinful pleasures goes on living, though she is dead even while she lives, 1 Timothy 5, verse 6. So our first parents and we as their children exhibit this same contradiction, dead spiritually while living the illusion of life. No one can tell us that <laughs> we are nothing but dry bones bleached of all life. Because we feel, we feel so much alive. But dead we are. Just as God warned, dead towards God, dead towards the truth of God's word, preferring to believe the lie, not once or twice, but every day of the week, year in, year out, people are living while dead. As contradictory as that might sound. So that brings me to a very important question, and it is this. How dead is dead? How dead is dead? Theologians call this the fall of man, but I would suggest to you that it was no fall, because I don't like the word fall. Fall speaks of something accidental. No, this was a deliberate leap into the abyss of death, an intentional decision to break loose from God and to opt for our own reasoning instead, and the consequences are never trivialized in Scripture, never. Let me read from Paul. He says, Since they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, He gave them over to a depraved mind to do what ought not to be done. They have become filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed, depravity, they're full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, and malice. They are gossip, slanderers, God-haters, insolent, arrogant, boastful. They invent ways of doing evil. They disobey their parents. They are senseless, faithless, heartless, ruthless. I'm reading scripture. And although they know God's righteous decree that those who do such things deserve death, 
they not only continue to do these very things, but they also approve of those who practice them. Romans 1, 28 and following. Mutual admiration society. I sin, you sin. I like your sin. You like my sin. And by the way, you will not have to work hard to find your sin in this list in Romans 1, 28 and following. It's there, and my sin is there too. And it is a list accentuating in bold type our deadness towards God. Ephesians 2, 1, Paul told the church of Ephesus what their spiritual state was when God came to them in the gospel. He just lays it right out. You were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of the world, the spirit who's now at work and those who are disobedient. What is that? Well, that's Satan and Adam and Eve all over again. still opting for idle substitutes over the revealed God of the Bible because they are dead in trespasses and sins. And while they live their lives there, they live in disobedience to God. Now question, how many people are affected by this? He goes on, Paul goes on, Romans 6, 23. There's no difference, says Paul, for all have sinned. All fall short of the glory of God, Romans 3.23. Okay, what then are the consequences of sin? Same as were the consequences for Adam and Eve. The wages of sin is death, Romans 6.23. We'll say maybe there are Maybe there was some portion of man's makeup that was not altered by the fall. I'm kind of thinking of man's will remaining intact. I mean, man can still choose on the side of right and opt to believe in and obey God. He can reach out. He can accept Christ as Savior. After all, the Bible itself commands us to believe, doesn't it? So it's obvious God must think that we can believe. All very logical. But also all very unbiblical. Don't trust your logic because human logic is part of the problem, not part of the solution. It's tainted by sin. Believe the Bible first and foremost, then develop your theology, your explanation from what God says. Okay, what does God say about our spiritual abilities? I'll read it for you. Romans 3, 10 and following. There's none righteous. Not even one. There is no one who understands. Well, wouldn't you have to understand something about God and salvation to want them to be in your life? 
I'll read on. No one seeks for God. Hmm, wait a minute. Isn't seeking a decision of the will? But here we are told that no one seeks for God. What are they doing then? Reading on. All have turned away. There is none who does good, not even one. Their throats are an open grave. That sounds like deadness to me. A grave open? Ooh. Their tongues practice deceit. Their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. The way of peace they do not know. There's no fear of God before their eyes. Oh, that means they're defiant. Hmm. Romans 3, verse 10 and following. Did you get all this? None righteous? So they're not going to seek for righteousness. No understanding? No seeking of God? No doing of good? Death is in their speech. Bitterness is in their hearts. Cursing is on their tongues. No fear of God is in their disposition. Sounds like dead towards God to me. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 2 verse 14. The man without the spirit does not accept the things that come from the spirit of God. Oh, well, wouldn't that include something like accepting Christ as the only Savior? They're not going to accept that. Why not? Why won't he accept them? For they are foolishness to him. Wow. The natural man cannot appreciate the wisdom of God, who is Christ. 1 Corinthians 1, verse 30 cannot understand the things of God because they are spiritually discerned and he doesn't have the spirit. You have to have the spirit of God to understand spiritual things. But this person is said to be a man or woman without the spirit. Verse 14. King James Version calls him the natural man. That is, man as he is found in nature, untouched by God. Here's a question. Is spiritual deadness a kind, of, um, a kind of neutrality towards God? You know, like an agnostic. Agnostics say, I don't know if there is a God, but I'm open to the idea if you can prove it to me. Hmm. You ever try to prove God to an agnostic? Don't confuse them with the facts their mind is made up. Paul writes, those who live according to the sinful nature have their mind set on what that nature desires. Okay. What does that nature desire? What does it will Romans 8, verse 6 and following. The mind of sinful man is death. The sinful mind is hostile to God. Brethren, hostile isn't neutral, is it? Hostile. Hostile is aggressively defiant. Aggressively defiant. 
Well, how is this hostility expressed? I'm reading on. It does not submit to God's law. Isn't submission a decision of the will? Those controlled, is the will free? Those controlled by the sinful nature cannot please God. Wouldn't belief in Christ as Savior be something that pleases God? You see where I'm going on this. The belief that brings salvation is not in their heart. What's in their heart? Hostility towards God. Deadness towards God. By the way, brethren, there is no degree of deadness. A person is either alive spiritually or dead. And if dead, they are like the dry bones lying in the valley where Ezekiel stood. All spiritual life has been bleached out of them. They lie where they fell. They have fallen where they were slain. Their life was taken from them. And life, Israel of old, they must say, verse 11, our bones are dried up and our hope is gone. We're cut off. There's no degree of deadness. What makes their case hopeless? It is this principle. Helpless is hopeless. Two words. Helpless is hopeless. They're dead. They cannot help themselves. They are dead and they do not even want to help themselves. God is out of their life and they like it that way. They prefer it that way. How helpless is that? They do not even care about the consequences of disowning God. Where are you getting that? It's right in the scripture. There's no fear of God before their eyes. They're not scared of God. They're not afraid to die because they're already dead. And being dead, they deny the hell which awaits them just as they deny the God who made them. Brethren, helpless is hopeless. This is why Ezekiel was cautious when God asked him, Ezekiel, can these bones live? Verse 3. And his answer, O sovereign Lord, you alone know. I love that. By the way, Ezekiel is not dodging the question. 
He is answering truthfully from what he has observed and what he knows. There are no bodies before him, just bones, and the bones are very dry. Verse 2, life has long since gone from these owners. No one can bring out the defibrillator paddles and shock them into life. No one can administer a shot of epinephrine and jumpstart their heart. There's no heart for God there. No mind to convince. No will to persuade. No decision to solicit. There is just deadness like is found at a gravestone in a graveyard. On occasion I stop at the Menomora Cemetery and I stand in the front of the stone at my wife's grave. I miss her, and I wish to God she were alive or would come back to life. But that's helpless, and helpless is hopeless. It's a dream to think that that would ever happen in my world at my time. How totally shocking then, how utterly anti-human reason and logic for God to say to Ezekiel, as he does say in verse 4 and following, prophesy to these bones and say to them, dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Talk about insanity. Has God lost his mind? I speak as a man, how foolish. Now it brings out a searching question, and the searching question is this. Why preach to the dead? Have you ever thought of that? I'll tell you preachers think about that. One day, two sisters, Mary and Martha, were mourning the death of their brother Lazarus, who had died and was buried some four days before Jesus showed up at their home. Both of these sisters said essentially the same thing to Jesus. And it was these words. Let me read them for you. Lord, Lord, if you had been here... My brother would not have died. Martha said that. A couple minutes later, Mary got into the same discussion with Jesus and she said the same thing. Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. You see, they had hope so long as Lazarus still lived. So long as there was breath in his body, they saw Jesus as the one who could be of great help to sickly Lazarus. I mean, after all, Jesus healed many in their day, well known throughout Palestine. He had healed 
Lots of people, Mary and Martha, knew about that. But when Lazarus died, Mary and Martha's hope died with him. Why? Because Jesus, as an aide, could help the sickly. But what could be done for the lifeless dead? They were hopeless because Lazarus was helpless. He was dead. Isn't this what many Christians think of the unbelieving world? That salvation is possible because sinners aren't dead. They're, they're, they're not dead. They're just sickly. They're just sickly. Jesus can help the sick because there's some life there, but what can, I mean, what can he do if we admit that they are dead? And the message these preachers preach is this, and you've all heard it. God has done all that he can do. Now it's up to you to believe. Poor God. He can't do much unless he has the cooperation of the hearer. Oh, but, <laughs> I mean, if the sinner is dead, what will be the outcome? I'll tell you what it is. We've lost all hope. No, we shouldn't lose hope. Stand in awe. Listen to what God can do with the dead. John tells us that Jesus, deeply moved, came to the tomb of Lazarus. And he said, take away the stone. Oh, Martha protested. Uh, uh, but Lord, uh, but, but Lord, uh, but by this time, there's a bad odor, for he has been dead four days. Then Jesus said to her, Did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone. And after a prayer to God, Jesus called out in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. When we are told the dead man came out, his hands and feet wrapped with strips of linen and a cloth around his face. And Jesus said, take off the grave clothes, let him go. John 11, verse 38. What can God do for the dead? He can open the grave and call them forth, and they have to obey. They come forth. Resurrection is in the power of God's word.
Lazarus come forth, and it happened just as he declared. Why should we preach to the dead? Because at the sound of the voice of Almighty God, the dead come alive, and they hear, and they obey. Is anything too impossible? For that one who claims I am the resurrection and the life, he who believes in me will live even though he dies. And whoever lives and believes in me will never die. John 11 verse 25. Oh, wait a minute. Isn't believing, isn't believing a sign of life? How can the dead believe? There's a question. Indeed, how can they hear? Paul tells us. Faith comes from hearing the message. And the message is heard through the word of Christ. Romans 10, 17. Brethren, the faith that saves is the faith that comes. It isn't that scientific faith based on deductive reasoning and human logic and the law of probability. It's none of that. Saving faith is the gift of God, not a work so that no one can boast. Ephesians 2 verse 8. No one believes God till God instills life, his life, in them. promised, by the way, in that Ezekiel text. Ezekiel 36, verse 26. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh and I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and to be careful to keep my laws. Faith is the outworking of the new heart. It's not the precursor to it. God gives you faith. And then with that faith you believe in Why preach to the dead? Well, because through gospel preaching, God grants life to those dead, which he has decreed to be his people. And by such preaching, life and faith and repentance are granted. One more proof. Paul in Antioch, along with Barnabas, were preaching the gospel. And the whole, almost the whole city in Antioch, Pisidian, came out to hear him preach. When the Jewish leaders saw this, it says they became jealous and began to talk abusively against the apostles. Boy, that's a good reaction to the gospel, to talk abusively against. Acts 13, 44. So Paul then turned his attention exclusively to the Gentiles, the scripture says, who honored the word of the Lord and all who were appointed to eternal life. 
believed. Did you get that? All who were appointed to eternal life believed. Acts 13, verse 48. What happened? Did the Gentiles hear a different gospel than what Paul preached to the Jews? No. Why then did the Jews reject what the gospel, what the, excuse me, what the Gentiles believed? The hearing of the gospel, which counts for salvation, is but the external hearing of the ears, but the hearing of the heart, which only God's ordained people demonstrate, brings salvation. Same goes for repentance, as goes for faith. Where do you get that? Acts 11. Peter was called on the carpet for having dared to go to the house of Cornelius, a Roman centurion, preach the gospel to him. Boy, he took a lot of flack for that. But when Peter explained that the Holy Spirit came upon Cornelius and his family as had occurred among the Jewish believers, we read when they heard this, they had no further objection, and they praised God, saying, So then, God has granted even the Gentiles repentance unto life. Now, Acts 11, verse 18. So as with faith, there's a belief the world can produce, which is not of God, so the world can produce a repentance which is not of God. A sorrow that can't even renounce sin and so forth, but never turn away from it. We have a man in scripture epitomizing that's Esau. Boy, he did a lot of weeping. Whoa. He didn't receive the spiritual blessing from God. He wept. I want it, Lord. I want it. I want it. But it wasn't a repentance unto life. That is the gift of God to his people. It's like faith. Faith and repentance. These are spiritual graces. So then what are the implications for the day that you first believed? Well, number one, all of us were spiritually dead towards God. Got to face it. The day our salvation came to us, we were dead, spiritually. This means that the life which came to us that day was of God's doing, not our doing. God took away the stony heart that was there. He replaced it with a living, breathing heart. It's called regeneration in the scriptures, the New Testament. And it precedes faith and repentance, which are its fruits not their progenitor, Ephesians 2, 4 words it this way. Because of his great love for us, God, who's rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in transgressions. By grace you have been saved. God raised us up with Christ. So resurrection is about the dead coming to life, isn't it? We have it in our text, verse 14. I will put my spirit in you and you will live. And that's the only reason we live. Spiritually. Secondly, any belief in Christ that you exercise 
or repentance from sin and turning to Christ was part and parcel of the resurrection to life. These are not your contributions to salvation. As though you were in some way just sickly and not dead. All the graces to see Christ as Savior, to appreciate his cross work, to respond aright, are due to the ministry of God's Holy Spirit who takes up residency in the new heart that he created. From start to finish, we are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do good works which God prepared in advance for us to do. Ephesians 2, verse 10. Third implication is there's never any guesswork or uncertainty that salvation will somehow elude God's chosen people. Never. Our text, verse 2. This is what the sovereign Lord says. O my people, I'm going to open your graves and bring you up from them. Verse 13. Then you, my people, will know that I am the Lord when I open your graves and bring you up from them. Verse 14. Then you will know that I am the Lord, have spoken. I have done it, declares the Lord. In the New Covenant, Jesus put it this way. All that the Father gives me will come to me. Whoever comes to me, I will never drive away. This is the will of him who sent me that I shall lose none of all that he has given me, but raise them up at the last day. John 6, verse 37 and following. The day you come to Christ was the day your salvation became real in time, space, history, and sealed for eternity. but it was a fulfillment of God's decree. And then finally, since God alone is the Savior of His people, God alone gets the glory. This is logical, right? Do you know that God is very jealous? He is. About His own glory? Don't try to take that away from Him. He says, I am the Lord. That is my name. I will not give my glory to another or my praise to idols. Isaiah 42, verse 8. Paul words it this way. Brothers, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise, the weak to shame the strong, the lowly and despised, so that no one may boast before him. It is because of him that you are in Christ Jesus. Therefore it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. 1 Corinthians 1 verse 26. I've heard Christians take the stand when they hear something like this and say, oh, yeah, yeah, but, uh, but I had to believe. God dis the God's decrees, 
Notwithstanding, I had to believe. I had to repent. And they say it that way. I had to do my part. I had to contribute. Never understanding that both faith and repentance are the gift of God. The gift of God to his people. Next week we're going to talk about the day of our redemption, which will fit in with the Easter season. Call to come to God. But even today, the Holy Spirit may be calling some of you, saying, today, if you hear God's voice, don't harden your heart. Don't do that. See to it that none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God. Hebrews 3, verse 8, verse 12. Don't harden. another text God has said you know my spirit won't always strive with man I'm not always going to argue with you I'm not always going to bring conviction to your life I'm not always going to draw and plead with you to come I'm not going to do that always there's going to come a day when I shut the door throw the padlock on the gate and let you to yourself. You didn't want me in your life. You didn't want salvation from me. You wanted to be defiant and on your own. So go and be defiant and on your own. The scripture says the fool has said in his heart, there's no God. I don't have to answer to anybody outside of me. You think that? You're going to think your way right into the abyss of hell. May God grant you forgiveness today, repentance, and faith. Father, we thank you for your word. How precious to us it is. Pray for our hard hearts. Please do what you promised in Ezekiel. Take out that stony heart. Stony hearts don't have any feeling whatsoever towards God. They're just calcified, encrusted, calcium and whatever else. Mostly deadness. Stone heart is dead heart. And that's the unbeliever today, dead towards God. But Lord, you're a person, you're the Savior, you're the Almighty that can grant life to the dead. We have many illustrations of that in Scripture, but spiritual life as well. And that's what it's going to take for any of us to come to know the salvation of God. That you would grant us life. Take that stony heart out. Make us sensitive, pliable, hearable listeners to the word of God. Grant us the repentance and faith, which we don't have. Save whom you will to the glory of God. And for our good, we pray these things.
Our closing hymn is 648 in Trinity. 648 in Trinity. We'll stand as we sing.
God's people said. Amen. 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 We're dismissed. Screwed off that thing, I guess. Thank you. Hey.